It's a little odd that we take, you know, that was 15 minutes plus, that we take so much time to do something like this. But this is all part of something that God has been doing here, isn't it? And the thing that God has been doing is he's saying, I really want the body of Christ to become the body of Christ. A body is something that moves. A body is something that does something. A body is where you got a hand and you got an eye and you got a head and you got feet. And the body comes together, each giving their own gift and moving this thing forward, making a difference in the area of giftedness that you have in combination with others. Now, that, I, I say this because this is actually my introduction to our speaker today. This is, you know, we've been over the last, what, year and a half or so, almost two years now, we've been having almost every month someone from the congregation come up and preach. And, and I want to say something. I need you to understand, I take a lot of time with them. This isn't something where I just don't preach and I just tell them, go ahead and preach and do this. I really work with them, but here's why I'm working with them. Can you imagine how much you're going to grow if you ever have to preach to you guys? You know, I mean, this is a pretty mature audience. There's some really great Christians in here. There's a whole lot of voices in here that make a huge difference. And let me just say something. And I, and this is, I suppose I shouldn't say it this way, but I'm going to anyway. You know, tell me another church where you've ever seen this happen before. I mean, a, a, you know, that's a larger, well, not large, but, you know, that's a significant size body where there really is this thing of bringing people from the congregation to come up and speak. Where does that happen? Why does that happen? I was told just recently that I have not continued to cast the vision of what this is really about so that we can all be on the same page. What this is really about is God wants to move through you. And we give that lip service in every church, but we don't actually give it pulpit time. We don't actually give it worship time. We don't actually give it ministry time. You know, in the old paradigm, the one that we have transitioned from, there is a professional pastor who builds a team around them, but really it's the pastor that carries the weight and the load and the other people help, and they grow a little bit. The pastor grows a ton. With our pastors, Troy and Dan involved, we started hearing the Lord say, discipleship in the American church is, at an, is, is abysmal, I am unhappy, I'm blowing up the church, I want things to change, and with Troy and Dan in the room, we realized that what that meant was the pros were the problem. Professional paid pastors were, were growing, carrying the weight, we were paying them to do what God had asked us to do, us to be part of, because that's where he would disciple us. It was the body of Christ that's to do the ministry of Christ. The whole body, not just a few with a little, some helpers. So that's the vision. So we've done it in worship. I told you when we first did worship, I said, we're going to go from, you know, Troy Wright, which how good a worship is that? We're going to go, Troy Smith, excuse me. Troy Smith, how good a worship is that? We're going to go from Troy, and we're going to find our way through. But, you know, here we are a year and some later. The worship is great here. You know what I mean? I get that in some ways it's not what Troy does, but the other side of that coin is, these people are growing like crazy. They're getting better and better. They're really starting to learn what it is to lead God's people into worship. They are doing phenomenal. I am starting to get lost in worship again, just like the old days. So I don't know if you're even coming to worship at this point in time, but let me encourage you to. Yeah, amen, huh? I mean, it just really, God really is blessing it. Things are changing. Yes, we said it would take a couple of years to do. Having said that, again, when I first announced that we're going to do it with worship, I said, that'll be the first public place you'll see it. It was happening 
in kids, in youth, in everything. Even Julie Jenkins, she calls herself Lake Sam Kids Pastor, but that's, that's more of a comfort term for people that need that. Really, the fact is she's building a team that is working on its own, and she's helping us build other teams too, and it's going fabulously. I mean, Amy Iwasaki is just doing an incredible job with putting these teams together. It's amazing. But I said when I first announced about worship, I said it'll happen in a pulpit too. And I get that some people would prefer that I just preached every week or almost every week. And some people would prefer I not do that, of course. <laughs> but but I, just, I told you at that point in time, I said, we're going to be asking voices from the congregation to come up and to speak. And the reason why is because God wants to say something through them. And we need to be hearing it. Our current structure of church doesn't allow for that. So we changed our current structure of church to allow for that. Because it's important. I, I've heard this sermon already because, like I say, I work with the people that are doing this to help them be successful, to help them learn about what it is to make up a sermon and do it and, and deliver it well and do all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I would hope that when, they, when somebody stands up here from the congregation, I'd hope you'd be praying for them the same way you'd be praying for yourself if you were doing this. Because, <laughs> right? It's a reach, right? Now, this one guy here, it turns out, he's going to give you his bio, and I'm not going to speak much longer. I would do a longer bio on him because I really love this guy. I've come to love him more and more as I've got to know him more and more. But he actually has, as he will tell you in his bio, he actually has experience with this. And yet, God has an interesting journey that he took him on. And I'm just really excited. Would you please welcome Zach Rogers? Thank you. Thank you. Am I on? This is actually happening? <laughs> I'm a bit nervous. It's been a long time since I've uh, stood in front of a, a congregation and shared my, my life. Um, Pastor Kurt asked me to preach, and uh, I realized that yesterday, that today was going to be April Fool's. So at any point, I'm expecting him to go, yeah, all right, come on. <laughs> um, but this is an honor. I mean, this is, this, is, uh, this is a big deal for me. It has been, uh, yeah, 18 or 19 years since I've uh, stood in front of people and, and talked about God. And God has, had a, um, has taken me on quite a journey. So we're going to talk about my journey, and I'm going to tie that into, uh, you know, to, to some scripture and in build it into a sermon. Is this thing on? All right. Many of you guys know me, okay? And that is my family. My wife and uh, kids are sitting there in the front row. We're a couple back, you know, they don't want to be too exposed there. <laughs> and that's me. I was born June 17, 1973 in Los Angeles, California. My parents are Mike and Linda Rogers, and I was raised in Manhattan Beach, California, all right, yeah, Southern California. I was raised in an uh, upper middle class family. I had a lot of advantages that, you know, other kids probably didn't have. Uh, we had, you know, uh, boats, and we scuba dived, and water skied, and snow skied, and I had skateboards, and bikes, and surfboards, and, you know, all, all the stuff. And, um, you know, life was, life was fairly good, and, uh, you know, I was fairly adventurous throughout my life. Uh, 
Um, ironically, on my fourth or fifth birthday, I've got to share this little story. I like fishing so much that my parents decided to just get me a fish for my birthday. And I like, I mean, it was cool. I liked, I think they gave me other gifts too, but I, I got, you know, I, I was able to, so I got this fish. I want to say it was a big tuna or something like that. It was probably just a mackerel, you know what I mean? It was just, just one of the, you know, bottom feeder fish. And they even have pictures of this, by the way. So they, uh, they took, <laughs> they took the uh, mackerel, and I even, then when it was uh, bath time, they had me take a bath with it, right? And I played with it for hours until, like, the, 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 uh, the flesh fell off the bones, you know what I mean? <laughs> and there's actually pictures of this that I didn't deem appropriate to put up here, you know, me in a bath with a dead fish. Anywho. <laughs> All right. For the most part, I have always been kind of living on the edge, you know. Uh, Like I said, grew up in a fairly, you know, upper middle class family, and we got to do lots of stuff. And there's a picture of me there where I was shaving, and I think I was four, so I was trying to grow up, you know. I wanted to be like Dad. There's me launching big air on a bike. My kids are laughing here because I get big air. That's, you know... Um, Running on top of a mountain, I don't remember where that was, probably Utah, and then there is, uh, you know, there's one of me, uh, you know, rock climbing or rappelling. I was probably, I don't know, 11, 12 years old. But uh, let me tell you, I've always been a bit extreme. Last summer, I went skydiving, and there's this new thing where you, uh, you jump out of the airplane without a parachute, okay, and you chase the parachute down. And until you can grab it and put it on before you hit the ground. Obviously, I, I was off somewhere because you see the trees, right? <laughs> Actually, I was just on a trampoline doing a backflip. <laughs> All right. You want to know something really scary, though? It's right there. That's scary. Anybody know that kid? Right? Anybody have that kid? Yeah? That's right, a prideful adolescent that knows everything, right? Funny thing is, I don't completely remember this picture, but this guy looks a little disgruntled, and it almost looks like he's holding his hand back from giving me the old, you know, like one of those springboard actions. (laughs) Good times, good times. I'm still really nervous, but I'm going to get over it. All right. Here's some old pictures of my family. Actually, the one in the middle that you saw first, that's not me. That's my older brother. I'm the guy in the corner there probably. I, I think it was my brother's birthday, but if you see there's a present right there, I was reaching, I wanted that present. I was reaching in for that present. And then, uh, you know, you've got my dad and mom and brothers and sisters. My youngest sister, Katie, she's missing uh, out of the pictures just because she was born, you know, last and I couldn't find, you know, many more pictures. But... Uh, yeah, yeah. So, if, if, if a lot of you guys remember this, this era, the 70s, this was a time of um, bell bottoms, right? Yeah? Paisley? Yeah? Yeah? Plaid? Yeah? Mustaches? Yeah? Bruce? <laughs> yeah? This was a time before cell phones, before computers, before, you know what I mean, all the technology and all the stuff that we have today. This is also a time before seatbelts. 
And so I, I just thought I'd share this interesting story. My, my mother um, used to take us on this adventure we called the, uh, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. And what that constituted was we'd all jump in my, uh, my mother's uh, VW uh, van, stick shift, without seatbelts, and she would drive as fast as she possibly could over drainage ditches. And we would bounce and hit the ceiling and, you know, you know good time. I also, during this time, uh, learned how to, uh, learned how to um, drive a stick shift, okay? I was uh, four or five years old. And what, what it was was my mother would be nursing my youngest sister while driving. And then when she would pop the clutch in, she would tell me what gear I needed to, to put the car in, right? <laughs> and when she sees this, I'm in trouble, <laughs> you know? Ooh. All right. Here's a more modern picture of my current family. This was done last summer. And so you see me, I'm up there in the corner, the more colorful group, right? And then you've got my older brother and his wife and my dad and my dad's wife and then my mom, right? Blended, you know how families are a little bit different these days than they once were. But, you know, again, we're fairly normal. Or, or are we? <laughs> All right. The question here is that, you know, what's, what's missing? What's missing from, from the story? It's real easy to take a bunch of information and a bunch of pictures and piece together, uh, you know, what you perceive or what you see uh, somebody's life to be like. But I want to take you back, and if it's okay with you guys, you know, I want to take you back and give you my testimony, you know. And um, I think a lot of the stuff I'm going to say is going to be shocking to some people, but hey, it is what it is. I was born and raised in a Mormon household, so I learned a lot about God. We went to church every Sunday, all kinds of various church activities throughout the week. Um, church was, you know, ingrained within, you know, uh, the fabric of our life. Uh, however, I only learned about rules and traditions and do's and don'ts and you don't smoke, drink, or chew or run with those who do. We don't drink coffee. We don't watch R-rated movies. We do this. We don't do that. We do, we don't, we do, we don't, right? Never really saw God anywhere, you know. I uh, never really experienced anything spiritually significant as I was, you know, growing up. Uh, when I was 12 years old, I, you know, right around 11 or 12, my parents were going through a divorce. And uh, my mom was the one who actually, um, you know, left the house. She just had had it with the whole, you know, Mormon stuff and all kinds. Just she couldn't do it anymore. She couldn't play the happy housewife. So my mom was the one who took off. And we were stuck. I shouldn't say stuck. We were left with my father who worked. He was a contractor. So, you know, my brother and I, my older brother, uh, he and I started getting involved in, you know, drugs. And, you know, we were 12, 13, just about 14. We, we were running amok, you know. And um, when my dad remarried, I think he remarried when I, uh, right about 13, at the end of my 13th, you know, right around in there. So, my dad got remarried, and his now new wife decided that he, she was going to help wrangle the family in, and there were going to be, she was going to lay down the law. And what that meant for me was that I was going to be sent away uh, to a lockup because I was the bad kid. I was going to be sent away to Mississippi, of all places, 
Because I believe if I was to really, there was a family member whose cousin knew about this boy's home that was relatively cheap that they could send me that had some kind of God-related stuff to it, and they thought that was probably the best place for me to go, so they sent me to Mississippi. So from 14 and a half, I think I was about 14 and a half, till I was 15, I was, uh, I, I was in Mississippi in a lockup. And what I learned while I was there in Mississippi was uh, what it was to be born again, what it was to actually have a relationship with God. However, um, this was real southern backwoods type Mississippi stuff, right? Like they didn't allow black people in their churches. They wouldn't allow black people within their, their um, you know, the group home, uh, you know. I mean, just backwoods, you know, some of that stuff that you hear and go, really? Let me tell you, really. So I got back from that whole, and that I could write a book on maybe someday, you know, that whole experience. But when I got back, I was about 15 and a half, and I had lost a whole bunch of credits in school. They have a different system out there than they do in Southern California. And so I had lost a whole bunch of credits in school. So my counselor told me that I was going to get stuck, uh, you know, on the five-year plan. I would be in high school till I was 19 years old. That wasn't going to work for me, right? I mean, I, you know, no. <laughs> so I went uh, to my dad, my stepmom, and I said that there was a test called the California High School Proficiency Exam which in the state of California is, uh, by law, equivalent to the high school diploma. So it wasn't like I got a GED or anything like that, not that there's anything wrong with a GED, but I thought, you know, I'm going to go ahead and take a test out of school and uh, then start my life early. Well, my stepmother said that if you're not in school, you can't live in this home. So I said, I know how to fix that. I packed my stuff, and I left. So when I was 16 years old, I was living on my own. I met up with, a, you know, a hodgepodge crowd of, you know, misfits, and we decided we were going to rent a big four-bedroom house, and we were all going to sell drugs, and that was what we were going to do to sustain ourselves. So that's what we did. One day, and mind you, I'm only 16 now, so one day, um, the police came, and I was not on the lease. The police came, and they said, you know, uh, if you don't live in this house, you need to leave, because it was a crash pad, and there was just a bunch of people flopping there, and I thought, I'm going to grab my stuff and leave, right? So I grabbed my jacket and left. My roommate got busted for a whole bunch of, you know, for, for he pretty much took the brunt of it. But at this point, you know, we got evicted from the place and all that, and I was living in my car. Eventually, I rolled my car, okay? I mean, literally rolled my car. I was trying to hot rod around, doing some whatever, and I rolled the car. I totaled two cars. I flipped two times and landed upside down on a Volkswagen with, you know, Metallica playing, am I evil? Yes, I am. Right? Yeah. So it really worked out well for me, right? So I rolled my car, which means I rolled my house. So, you know, naturally, <laughs> you know, naturally I need to find a place to live. So I went from flop house to flop house. I was, you know, my, my drug intake was growing and growing, and I, you know, people stopped trusting me, and uh, I was living in garages living in laundromats, you know, wherever. Wherever was warm when it was cold. And I was going from place to place to place. Well, a buddy of mine, he used to let me sleep in his garage, uh, 
told me to come on over, and he wanted to talk to me. He wanted to talk to me about something. So I went over to his house, and he and I had a conversation about uh, a mutual friend of ours who had given his life over to Christ and how dramatically he had changed. And this guy, he thought I was out of control. This guy was out of control. You know, it was my buddy Casey. And I mean, just this, I mean, this, we used to tie a mannequin behind his truck and put ketchup all over it and, ah, you know, like we'd fill fire hydrants full of water and come around corners at bus stops and spray people. I mean, I was just, you know, out of control, right? So this guy gets saved and becomes a Christian. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, all right, let me hear a little bit about this. So my buddy, who to this day is not a Christian, uh, invites me over to his house. We have a conversation about how I need Jesus, right? <laughs> we have a conversation about how I need Jesus. And he even, uh, he even said, uh, he even said to me, you know, big macho guy. He held my hands and he says, let's pray, you know, and ask God to come into your life. And I, and I, you know, actually what he was telling me about Christ and everything, it wasn't stuff that I hadn't heard before because I went to Mississippi and I, you know, this, I, I had this stuff going on. So God had been kind of drawn and pulling my heart, you know, for a while. He ended up praying, God, come into my life. Uh, God, come into Zach's life. And then I also prayed. I said, God, you know, I can't go on this way. I need you to come into my life. I need you to change me. Christ, I believe in who you say you are. And at that moment, I felt like a bucket of warm water was just dumped over me. And I'm standing outside on this guy's porch, and I'm looking up into the sky, and I'm just feeling this overwhelming, just calm and peace, and like just, you know, God. And uh, now the real journey begins, right? Now the journey begins. I give my life to Christ. So couple weeks go by during this time, and during the couple weeks that were going by, um, God was doing amazing things. I found a wallet in a parking lot, credit cards, all kinds of stuff. You know what I would have done with that before? You know what I did this time? I opened it up, I found the guy's address, and I took the wallet to the guy, and then he said, man, thank you very much, he gave me $20. This whole thing paid off, you know what I mean? Like, I got 20 <laughs> bucks out of it, right? Like, you do good stuff, and then good stuff happens, you know, it was really cool. And there was another incident where, you know, this, this guy was playing horseshoes at, like, the YMCA, and I, he left his jacket somewhere, and I stole his jacket because I liked it, and that's because it's what I used to do. And, uh, and then he was talking about how his son gave it to him, and his son was, you know, was in Iraq. And, and I'm like, you know, I might know who stole that jacket, right? <laughs> so I went and got the jacket, right, because I hid it. And I'm like, you know, I found the guys, and I gave it back to him. So there was still a little deception there, you know. But God was doing, I mean, there was something going on. You know, there was some working there. So about two weeks in after I had given my life over to Christ, I, um, I'm, standing, I'm standing down near my grandmother's house uh, on the beach. She has a house, had a house, 20th in the Strand in Manhattan Beach, okay, on the Strand. My parents told her to not allow me to come in the house, okay. My grandmother used to unlock the storage room to allow me to sleep there, but she wouldn't let me in the house. So I'm standing at my grandmother's house on the strand, looking out, and this mutual friend that I was talking about who got saved, right, his brother comes walking up, and he says to me, God put it on Casey's heart to come down to L.A. and find you, and to take you back up. 
Pismo Beach, the San Luis Obispo County area, right? So, so I go up to Pismo Beach. I start going to church. I start learning about God. God's doing amazing stuff. You know, um, after a few months, uh, you know, I got sober, obviously, all that kind of stuff. After a few months, I go back down to Southern California, and I start attending a church called Hope Chapel. Hope Chapel is a four-square church in Manhattan Beach. I think it's actually on, in Hermosa Beach, but kind of borders right there. But anyway, so I start attending Hope Chapel. They have a missions outreach that they're going to do uh, to, the, in, to the Philippines. Just a little two-week mission outreach to the Philippines. And so, you know, I really feel like this is what God wants me to do. You know, God put it on my heart. I'm like, you know what? I really feel like I'm supposed to go on this, this two-week, you know, uh, missions trip. But in preparation for this, there's months and months of preparation, you know, prayer meetings, and we all get together and stuff like that. I really felt that if God, you know, was to take me out there, that I wasn't going to come back, that God had a different plan for me. So I packed all my stuff up. I put it in storage. I sold everything else. And by faith, I just went out. I went to the Philippines waiting for the opportunity. About a week and a half in, the, uh, the pastor of the, uh, the regional church there asked me to stay, work with the youth, and stay in the uh, parsonage, which is the house for the pastor. Um, and so for two years, I lived in the Philippines. They even had a Bible college there called um, Halls of Life Bible College, kind of an extension of Life Bible College. Anybody who knows that? So I went to Bible college. I worked, you know, within the churches. I did uh, evangelist outreach stuff. And, you know, I mean, as you can tell, I'm a fairly intense person. But when I used to, in the Philippines, when I would get on the, they would have these buses. And I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of, like, third world countries when they pack people in buses. And there's chickens and, like, goats and, and pigs hanging off the sides and stuff. And, you know, but you're going for, like, two or three hours. So they can't go anywhere. Perfect time to preach, isn't it? I'd stand up at the very front of the bus, and I would give it to them, you know? Where are they going to go? <laughs> anyway, when I got back from the Philippines, I, uh, God was doing something. Somewhere along the line, from the point I got saved and actually turned my life over to God, um, and then I started getting real churchy. Anybody know about churchiness, right? Churchianity. I spoke uh, Christianese or churchianese. I mean, I was all about just, you know, this. I was not the person that I wanted to be. But I felt so disillusioned with, with uh, really what was going on with me that I put it all on, you know, church and Christians. And Christendom, because I thought Christian was dumb. I mean, not Christianity, right? But just the whole system. And uh, I fell away, you know? I mean, it was a progression. So there's, uh, you know, I don't want to make it sound like I came back and I was like, you know, that didn't work out. I'm going to do something else in life. No, it was a very slow progression, stepping a little bit further away from God, you know? And I had known for a long time from the point I got saved that, that God had a plan for me. Uh, but I had completely turned and, you know, uh, over the years, walked away. So, I pursue other things in life. Uh, I start 
pursuing business and stuff like that. And my core belief is still there. I still feel like I'm a Christian and I'm doing, you know, all right. I mean, you know, I might dabble here and there and stuff that I probably shouldn't. I may not be the honest guy in business, but I wouldn't lie to your face, you know, like that kind of stuff. And I became very wealthy. You know, I was the richest person I knew. I was like one of those blue-collar rich people, though, you know what I mean? With white tips, like a blue-collar with white tips. Like just almost that white collar, but still kind of rough, you know what I mean? So, so I, was that, I was that guy, and, and I was miserable. I was absolutely miserable. And I remember when I bought my... I was buying properties, and I was in, down in Southern California, and I, I bought a duplex with my brother, and, you know, I just, I could do anything I wanted, anytime I wanted. If I said I liked that car, I could go to the dealer, and I could just buy the car, because I just, you know, God had blessed me, right? God had nothing to do with what was going on in my life at that time, or I certainly wasn't allowing him to do anything, but I was so darn miserable that I prayed, this was my prayer, and this was, a, uh, let's see here. Uh, 2005, God, I'm miserable. Whatever it takes for you to bring me back into a relationship with you is what I want for my life. That's what I want for my life. I can't keep doing this. I can't keep living the way that I'm living. There was alcohol involved and there was drugs and there was just a lot of, a lot of pain that was going on. And all that stuff was all that form of self-medication, you know, when you step away from God and you have to fill it with something else, you fill it with money, when that stops working, you'll find something else. Well, I found other things. So the prayer I prayed was, God, whatever it takes, if you have to make me broke and take everything away from me in order to get me to a place where I can have a relationship with you and understand you, so be it, right? What do they say? Be, be careful what you ask for, right? Right? So, nine months later, I lose everything. And when I mean everything, I had a yacht, right? It was 30 feet, so it was just, you know, 30 feet more is a yacht, so I had a yacht, you know. I had an $80,000 sand rail, a BMW, a trailer, a, you know, fun box, a, I mean, you, jet skis and quads and you name it, I had it in abundance, Every single thing got taken from me, everything. Whether I already owned it outright or not, I was selling the stuff just to make payments and bills and stuff like that, and the whole house of cards just crumbled in, and there was nothing, completely nothing left. But isn't that what I asked for, right? But I mean, I, if I was to, you know, be God, maybe I'd allow me to keep some stuff. No, no, not really. <laughs> My wife and I, I, I we, we, we talk about this. There's like, there was no, there's nothing. There wasn't anything left. I think there's a couple pieces of furniture from my past, but not, not much, right? So now I'm working my way back to a relationship with God. Not, not completely understanding what he's doing, but working myself back into a relationship with God. So, I moved from Port Angeles to, the, to, to Bellevue, the Seattle area, and one of the companies that I used to own, and then I sold, 
is still open and operational and in business here. The owner of that company hired me as a laborer. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. He hired me to come and manage the guys and, and uh, you know, and work. Right? So now I've got to go work for the company that I used to own. Yeah. little humiliation, you know. Actually, humbling. Isn't that the word I'm supposed to use? It was humbling. Um, but God was teaching me stuff. Even before that, I was, you know, I went to work. I was building cabinets and fences and decks and wh whatever, right? And we're talking about for, you know, what I used to get deducted in my taxes every month. You know, nothing. All right. So I don't want to take up too much time with that. But God's doing something, right? And I'm, and, I, and I'm trying to listen. So my wife and I move here because I got this great job opportunity to work for the company that I used to own. And um, I, we, we come here, and my wife and I decide we need to, you know, we need to find a church. I mean, we've got to find a church uh, if we're going to do this. This whole Christianity thing isn't, you know, just, you know, it's not a solo sport, right? Like, aren't we a body, you know? Right? We got to do this together. So my wife and I decided we were going to go and, you know, attend some churches. And we went to churches, and we, we left in the middle of the services. I mean, we, you know, I, I, I mean, I just... There was, there was a vibe that I didn't like or something, and maybe I just think I know everything, you know? <laughs> we didn't make it through a lot of the services in these other churches. But when we came to Lake Sam, and we heard Pastor Kurt preach, and the worship was fabulous, we came back again. And then we came back again. And then we finally decided this is the church that we're going to call our family. And we've been here ever since. That's been, what, four and a half, about four and a half years now. You know? So to continue the journey here. So God's doing something amazing. Uh, but none of it's feeling very comfortable. So this job that I'm running is winding down. And, and um, I had decided that I had felt that God was, was uh, um, calling me to, you know, open my own company again. Do my own thing. So I opened my own company in 2009, the end of 2009, I think it was October, and uh, February of 2010, I broke my ankle, right? Skateboarding with my kids, yeah? There's no 40-year-old man should be skateboarding, you know what I'm saying? Actually, I'm not 40, but it sounds better. You know, I'm not supposed to be skateboarding, you know? I got responsibilities. And you know, I had that Aflac insurance that I stopped paying like three months before. I'm like, I'll never use that, you know. <laughs> and I didn't get hurt on the jobs. It wasn't like I could claim, you know, any unemployment insurance or however that works. So now I'm just, you know, I'm just stuck. Well, again, God took care of me. I made a commitment when I, when I started, when I opened the company. I made a commitment to myself that I was going to tithe faithfully. I was going to do what I had never done before, and I was going to commit myself to some of the principles that the Bible talks about, one of them being tithing, right? It's the spirit of the tithe, guys. It's, it's, not, it's not the letter of the law. It's the spirit of the tithe. And I decided that, you know, it's something I've never done. I'm going to go ahead and do that. So about two years in, my company's booming. In the worst economic 
downturn since the Great Depression. I'm doing fabulous, right? I mean, you guys saw me Skype in from Hawaii, from the Ritz, right? Obviously, God's blessing was upon me, you know, and I was flourishing in everything that I did because of the principles that I had done, you know? So I get back from Hawaii. The phone is not ringing, okay? The crickets are chirping. There's nothing. There's no work. Nothing going on. So, of course, what do I say? God, I have done what you've asked me to do. I have entered into the, you know, spiritual vending machine. I have done my part. I have given so that I could have more given back to me. Pressed down, shaken together, overflowing, abundance, right? Like I want the abundant life. You see, I have, an, uh, I have an idea of what my life is supposed to look like, right? And the idea that, that, that I have is that I am going to move forward spiritually. God is going to bless me financially. And then I can take those blessings and bless other people with those blessings. But it ha I have a vision of what that looks like for me. But that vision was all based on principles, right? So this is, so this is what happens. I give it probably five, six weeks of the suffering, right? Not paying myself. I don't have any, you know, I, I don't know where the next, you know, dollar's coming from. Am I going to stay in business? What's going on? I'm in the kind of business that, like, you know, like a roofer would be. It's a big ticket item, but people make that decision usually once in their life. So I do windows and doors and glass once in their life. People do that. I'm not getting nothing. So it isn't like a service contractor that kind of gets little niblets and stuff like that of, a, you know, electricians or, you know, heating and air conditioning or plumbing guys. I'm a big ticket item kind of, you know, kind of contractor. So, but I got nothing. I got nothing. I got nothing for my guys. I got nothing for my employees. And I'm thinking, you know, what are you doing, God? So I call Pastor Kurt after I suffered for about five weeks. I got really mad. One of my employees, so how's it going out there? I'm going on bids and estimates all day, every day, five, six estimates a day. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, we'll get back to you. No, you're not. You know what I mean? You didn't get back to me. Nobody's getting back to me. So I'm, you know, I'm a little ticked off now. You know, God, how dare this happen to me? You know, and I'm watching other companies flourish around me that do the same thing that I'm doing. And I'm, I'm talking to the manufacturing plants, and they're like, oh, yeah, it's so busy right now. You know, it's been busier than it's been in three years, and we're pumping out windows, and we get orders every day. And I'm thinking, they're not for me, right? God, why aren't they for me? What's all this about? Okay, so then I call Pastor Kurt. And I say, Pastor Kurt, I'm mad at God, okay? God can take it, by the way, if you're mad at him. He can. I said, I'm mad at God, and I don't understand. So what does he say to me? Sounds like you're going to preach in a few weeks. <laughs> what? 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 How does that make any sense? So I've been on this journey. And here's the thing. The question then becomes... What is God trying to communicate to me in my situation, in my life, with where I'm at today? What's happening? What is God trying to say to me? And am I listening? 
I want to start with a, a few things here. First of all, I want to say this. None of the transformation that's happened in my life um, could have happened if I didn't do what God asked me to do. And I am talking about now the principles, right? Tithing. Doing what he told me to do because that's what he told me to do. If I didn't do these things, then I wouldn't be where I am now today with the new stuff that God's doing. And just so you understand this, when I get into fear about stuff, I fabricate all kinds of scenarios in the end game. Right? I come up with all kinds of ways that it might end up. But the truth is, I haven't suffered to the point where I don't get a Starbucks every day, you know? I may not have been able to pay myself, but I, you know, I've got a little bit of savings. But I want it to be my savings, right? I want God to continue to bless me uh, from, you know, the normal stuff that I do. I want him to keep doing that. And I don't want to have to tap into my savings, my provision that God's already given me to take care of me when things happen like this. So there's something I'm missing here, right? Something I'm missing here. But what I want to talk about is this. We have to establish that God first is good, God is loving, and God is faithful. In all interpretations of anything that I have going on in my life, I have to remember these things. That God is good. No matter what he does, he's got a plan for it, even though I don't get it. He's loving. He's always got my back. He always wants what's best for me. He always wants me to turn back to him. And he is faithful. He has never, ever, 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 ever once let me down. Ever. If I go back historically and I, and I draw on the, the, the God bank, there has never, ever been a time where God did not come through. Ever. Right? But when I get into fear and I start to future trip about stuff, what happens? I start losing that I start losing that. God must not be good. He must not be loving. And he probably isn't going to take care of me. So here's a good question for you. Doesn't God want me to prosper? Right? Doesn't he want me to be overflowing? Now, here's the question, though. When I think of what the word prosper means for me, this is what I come up with. From the Zactionary? <laughs> yeah, I have my own, right? You can make one for you, too. The word prosper, right? To progressively acquire more and more. Two, to have more than I once had. Three, to move forward financially. To have God give me stuff I want. To have God give me lots of stuff because I did what he asked or deserve it. Or just to make or have more money, right? That's what I think prospering means. But what does God want for me? Why am I going through what I'm going through? And so you guys get this, right? Nothing's really changed. My external circumstances... God's still taking care of me, like, you know, the, the manna. He's got my back.
These are the things that God is constantly trying to remind me of. Since this whole thing had, went, you know, had, had gone down and Kurt asked me, uh, <laughs> told me I was preaching. What a great idea this is. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we are aliens and foreigners here, right? Doesn't the Bible say that? That we're just passing through? And that this is not our permanent home. Our life of this world is a deception, it's false, and it's fake. What am I doing, right? The system of the world says you just need to get more stuff to be happy. Or when you, when you acquire, things become better for you. Doesn't God have something better, right? I mean, I like stuff. Don't get me wrong. I want to drive a nicer car. I want to be able to go and do fun things and go on vacation and all that kind of stuff. But should I be constantly concerned about my, my, my 401k and, and how much money I have in, in the bank and all of that kind of stuff? See, what I think God's telling me is this. He's telling me he wants to have a relationship with me. He doesn't want me to have a relationship with principles. He doesn't want me to have a relationship with the vending machine, the divine vending machine that I invest in and therefore I am supposed to get back. He wants me to come to him, press into him, find out what God wants, where his heart is. Amen? All right. Who else do we know, scripturally speaking, who was an alien in a land that they did not belong, right? 430 years, the Israelites were slaves in a land that was not their own. Statistics will say that like probably 2 million people, right around 2 million people by the time they ended up uh, leaving Egypt. So we're not talking about, you know, uh, you know, you know, a couple thousand people here. We're talking about a couple million people. And what does God do? God says to Moses, I hear my people's cry. I hear that they're in misery. I hear that they're in pain, and I'm going to respond to it. Wasn't that like the cry that I had? God, I'm in pain and I'm in misery. Do what you need to do to get me into relationship with you. Very similar to what they did. So all of a sudden, God takes them from the place that they, uh, the only place that they've ever known, pillar of fire by nighttime, right? Anybody cruised around at night and had a pillar of fire illuminated before you, you know? Or a pillar of cloud during the daytime to protect them. They get into a bind. God opens the, the sea with a wall of water on both sides and allows them to pass through, their enemies drown in that water when the water falls upon them, God's protection, God's provision, right? He gives them manna. They wake up in the morning, they scrape this little crusty substance off the ground, and they go, what is it? Which means manna. What is it? It's God's provision. It tastes like, what is it, honey crackers? God had their back, didn't he? So, but what did they do, right? Do we remember what they did? They complained and complained and complained. 
They had nothing but, you know, where is my this? And I'm thirsty and I'm hungry. But here's the thing I want to say. If you really look at, if you really look at the, you know, the, the whole story, did they not have some legitimate reason to complain, right? From like a human standpoint? They left a land that they knew. They had homes there. They even said, we sit around pots of meat and we, you know, what's the deal? Like, why, why are we going to come out to the desert to die? Which leads me to the conclusion here that God's past workings just must not be remembered, right? You'd think, like, from the stories we read in the Bible, there's no way. There's no possible way that you could watch God move in those miraculous ways and ever complain again in your entire life. There's no possible way. Do you guys remember that Peter denied Christ three times? And Peter was commissioned to go cast out demons and to heal people before this happened with the rest of the disciples? I don't know who, you're ta- I don't know who that guy is. I don't know what you're talking about. When it comes to things spiritual, somehow, from a human standpoint, I have a built-in forgetter. Something about it, I don't know what it is, but I have a built-in forgetter when it comes to things spiritual. God could do miraculous things, and you've heard my testimony, and you can go, yeah, God had his hand in this guy's life for sure, right? Does that keep me from complaining? I called Pastor Kurt, and I I don't get it. God is, you know, you know, <laughs> it's just. So let me ask you this. You remember what they did next? Moses took off for a while, right? He was talking to God. And they were like, who, who is this Moses guy anyway? Right? Who's this dude? I'll tell you what. Let's all fashion together this idol, and we'll just say that that's the God that brought us out of Egypt. We'll just create an image of what we believe to be God, and we'll worship him. That way we have a physical manifestation of what we believe was the uh, deity that brought us from one place to the other. And then it says they decided that they would have a festival unto the Lord, capital L. So there was some twist there. There was some twist there where they thought they could create an image of God but still use God. Are you guys following this? Okay. They thought they could take the real God, twist him up a little bit, and create their own little image, and then somehow that would be okay. Let me ask you this. What is idolatry? Well, according to the Zactionary, It's when I take what God has done and I put other things in his or its place. Or when I create from his creation and call it mine. Believing that my contributions got me to where I am. When I modify, tweak, twist, or otherwise alter what God has done, is doing, or will be doing. You know, this is especially hard for, uh, for men, right? And I'll tell you why. The curse on man, right, M-A-N, not men, 
was that they would toil all the days of their life, and from the work of their own hands, they would scratch a living. Which says to me that I create with my own hands my own destiny, per se, when it comes to things financial and taking care of me. But what God's, God does, New Testament era, is he wants to take care of my heart. He wants me to be in relationship with him. Right? All right. I'm way off with these. So give me a second here. <laughs> I got going. All right. Oh, this is, you guys will like this. I doll a tree. Okay? This is another cool definition. So it's when I, a, a, a cocky, prideful, immature, adolescent, take what God has created, what God has done, I fashion my own idea of it, and then I say it's mine. Right? I thought that was hilarious when I made it. <laughs> I, I sent this to Pastor Kurt. He, he may not re remember this, but there's a guy in the tree cutting the tree. He did it in like 30 minutes. I don't want to get off target, sorry. <laughs> he like climbed up the tree and cut the whole tree down in 30 minutes. Fascinating. All right. Okay, this is what God is saying. I am constantly communicating with you to find me and hear my voice. You must seek me above all else. Anything that you desire more than me becomes an idol. When you are determined to get your own way, you blot me out of your consciousness. Instead of single-mindedly pursuing some goal, talk with me about it. Let the light of my presence shine on this pursuit so that you can see it from my perspective. If the goal fits into my plans for you, I will help you reach it. If it is contrary to my will for you, I will gradually change the desire of your heart. Seek me first and foremost, and then the rest of your life will fall into place piece by piece. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. You know those are Jesus' words, right? Like that's what Jesus is saying. And that's right after he's talking about taking care of you and how God will always take care of you. Birds of the field, right? The flowers, birds of the field, <laughs> birds of the air, flowers of the field. That, that no matter what, God will always have your back. Whoops. Here it is for me. That acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. That when I am disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me. And I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it is supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. Unless I accept life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me and in my attitudes. Trust God from the bottom of your heart. Don't try to figure out everything on your own. Listen for God's voice in everything you do, everywhere you go. He is the one who will keep you on track. Don't assume that you know it all. Right? And that's it. Here's the thing. 
I know that a ton of us in this congregation are struggling, financially and otherwise. And there may even be people here who've never heard that they can turn their life over to God. So what I want to do here is two things. Everybody bow their heads for a minute. God's plan for us is to be in relationship. If there is anybody in this congregation sitting here today who's never given their life over to Christ and they want to start that relationship, would you just raise your hand? Nobody's looking but me. If you need prayer at the end of the service, anybody? Back underneath the cross. What a perfect Palm Sunday sermon. This is what God is about. He's trying to save lives. He comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to die to get us right. Reach in front. Grab this communion. I want to thank you, Zach. I just, I knew in my heart, actually, what Zach, what Zach didn't tell you and what I didn't tell him, God had told me that he was going to speak this Sunday, I felt like I was supposed to ask him, before he called me. And then he calls me and he tells me about how he's having this big fight with God. And I was kind of like, I wonder if I'm supposed to use him or not. And then, and then we, he just started talking about it. And the more he started talking, the more I just heard God all over what he was going through and knew how valuable it would be to us on Palm Sunday. This is the story of a life that continues to find God deeper and deeper in an intimate way. Right? Getting past Christianity, getting past the principles, getting past the religiosity, getting past all the dead that doesn't heal. Getting to the one that does. So Lord, we take this cup in which is your body. This bread on the bottom cup and we lift it up to you and we put our fingers in there knowing that we are the ones who have broken our lives and we break them in remembrance of what we have done. But it's also in remembrance of what you have done. That you are the one who broke your life. You didn't need to. You didn't make those choices. But you allowed your life to be broken. That I might join with you so that when you rose again, I would be healed. Whole. That's what we celebrate next week. What a perfect way to set us up for this week of remembrance of what it is that you did by rising again whole. So God, we take and lift up to you our broken lives, but even more, we lift up the broken and healed life of Christ that heals me. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, would you take this together? And now, Lord, we lift up this cup in which is the life of Christ. The life that you have for us because we're being made into his image. The life that isn't about principles and rules, but that is about the most intimate relationship possible. At every moment, Jesus said, I don't do 
what I want. I do what I see the Father doing. I say what I hear him saying, and that's it. And we would ask you, God, that you would take and make that our lives because we know it's the only way to fulfillment. It's the only way to fullness. It's the only way to everything that it is that you are.